0: hello and welcome to useful idiots i'm katie helper this week's episode is a special episode where instead of interviewing guests our special guests have a chat with each other and those special guests are none other than presidential candidate cornell west and author gabor mate so enjoy this great discussion you can listen here and you can also watch at youtube.com slash useful idiots please rate and review the podcast and subscribe to the youtube channel And go to UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com for extended interviews and for Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness, where Aaron Maté and I react to cable news clips and try to laugh instead of cry. Thanks so much and see you next week. Cornell, Brother West, it's a real um, honor to meet you. Um, I've been uh, following your um, trajectory for a long long time. It's actually not an easy task because it zigzags all over the place. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not, even if you just if I just looked at your academic appointments that's enough for several lifetimes um, but, but you know what let me ask you with a completely neutral question I'm just struck by the painting behind you of somebody comforting a kneeling man what is that about what, what's, the, what's the what's the image is it a biblical image
1: oh yes yeah this is this is one of the last great masterpieces of Rembrandt the prodigal okay. son that sits now okay. in St. Petersburg, but it's a, uh, it's right. really just giving it his all along with the, the Gustav glimpse, the kiss as well on the other side. Right. But, uh, but I just want to begin by saluting you though, brother. Hermann. You are one of the few favorites of my beloved wife, Anna Heat. Uh, she's a distinguished professor herself in psychology at Long Beach community college. And, uh, She has been singing your praises for many years and for very good reason. (laughs) I'm telling you, man, wrestling with trauma and wrestling with uh, ADHD and ADD and all the various ways in which wounded people try to make sense of the world. You have such a, um, not just a brilliance, but a wisdom, not just a sensitivity, but a genuine compassion for them. Others as well as the world—it's a very beautiful thing to witness in any historical moment, let alone a grim and dim one like we're living in right now, though, brother. So that uh, it is a unadulterated joy and blessing for me to be in conversation with you, and of course your kids, your daughter. We saw the interview with your blessed daughter, brother Aaron work mm-hmm. over the years of course with Naomi Klein and a whole host of others and the Canadian U.S. connection is a fascinating thing, it really is. I uh...
0: Well you know what, so t- let me tell you about the Canadian U.S. connection. So I arrived in uh, Canada at age of 13 from Hungary as a refugee after the anti-dictatorship revolution, anti-communist revolution in 56, him in 57 and um, in the fall, I was going to school here in Canada, and all my classmates were listening to the World Series of Baseball, you know? Yeah. And I come from Hungary, where our team was one of the best football teams in the world for several years in the 1950s. In fact, we, we didn't lose a game for several years. And anyway, what was I was struck by that this baseball series between two American teams, they called it the World Series. And I thought, what are you talking about the world? It's only one country. And <laughs> and I thought to myself, only the Americans are arrogant enough to call that the world, and only the Canadians are stupid enough to believe it, you know?
1: <laughs> that's
0: so, so that's the Canadian-American connection.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's so very, very true, though, brother. Well, I can tell you this, too, that uh, Budapest has always meant so much to me, because when I was coming along in my early 20s, uh, I was reading every word that the great Georg Lukács had published, from soul and right. soul, yeah. theory to the novel, history and class consciousness, powerful stuff on socialist realism, even his ontology. I wrote a long essay that I published in the early 80s on his, uh, his ontology that he wrote at the end of his life. But, I mean, Lukash has got to be one of the towering intellectuals of late European modernity, from the collapse of the austrian hungarian Empire all the way through the Soviet Union, sure. I think he died in seventy-one, which is uh is twenty years before the collapse of the Soviet Empire. You know, he. Uh, That's right. Well,
0: he yeah, he was one of the ones in Eastern Europe who still maintained an independent mind, because you know, and actually, what strikes me is. There was a propaganda system there under the communist regimes, Um, but kind of everybody could could see through it, you know, so that Mm. as a kid, I fell for it. I really, you know, and then so the Hungarian Revolution was a real disillusionment for me in a very positive sense. I lost my illusions, you know, and and I went through a number of disillusionments, including with the United States, because after I left Hungary, the United States was the shining city on the hill, you know, the land of freedom. Until four years later, the Vietnam War, and here's this shining city in the hill raining death yes. on on this small Viet, uh, Asian people, and then I had a further disillusionment with my Zionism, where I thought, you know, the Jewish state and now we're gonna reaffirm ourselves and find our freedom and our dignity, except I didn't realize that this happened at the expense of another people. Right. So, so, so Lukash was one of these people that did open the wedge of disillusionment with what was going on over there. But let's come to the present moment. And um, because I think maybe that's on everybody's minds these days. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, and I'm I'm not even talking about taking sides here, but what's going on is somehow that one of the heaviest things, if not the heaviest thing I've witnessed in my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I don't know how to compare tragedies. I don't know how to compare suffering. And I know in Vietnam, 3 million people died, 50,000 Americans, um, 3 million Vietnamese. In Iraq, f- half a million or so civilians, you know. Um, right, right. But there's something like what was going on right now that seems heavier and darker. Maybe because, and I, I wonder what you have to say about that. Maybe because we're witnessing it happening in real time. Right. right. You know? but do, do, you, do you have a sense that there's some special darkness going on right now? or uh, that people are experiencing, maybe on both sides, all, all sides of this issue. i just wondering what your sense of it is on the emotional, spiritual level.
1: Well, I, I, I do <clears throat> resonate so deeply with you, though, brother, in terms of um, just the sheer impact on my soul and the sheer impact on my psyche. Uh, I think it has something to do with the fact that when you watch precious human beings, being uh, literally killed, crushed, demeaned, degraded day after day in your life uh, that makes you think that this particular historical moment has a certain grimness and darkness that others don't. I mean, I try to have some critical detachment in the sense that I I have a... I've always felt that no evil would surprise me and no no despair would... um, paralyze me yeah because you know you and i know the history of the species you know what i mean hegel said history is the slaughterhouse and yeah. gibbon says it's just the uh, the register of crimes and follies of humankind and we know somewhere around the world has got to be in the congo and landless peasants in brazil and so forth that people are being crushed in such vicious and atrocious ways but I I agree with you though there there's something about the precious Palestinians in Gaza with the TV coverage or sometimes we could say relative lack of coverage when it comes to certain corporate media yeah. sites though but those that are courageous enough to try to disclose and lay bare the full truth that it hits you so so hard though brother but it. I mean, you already lay, put forward your very powerful conceptions of both the wretchedness and the wonderfulness of we human beings, uh, that you, you, you've been willing to look unflinchingly at forms of, of trauma that shatter people's souls, and yet also you accent their bounce back and uh you know i would want to accent the the bounce back of the palestinians even in this grim and dim time even as i don't in any way want to downplay just in what genocide really looks like on television the crime of genocide what it looks like on tv and trying to ensure that they don't feel as if they're in the world by themselves Very much. i just I, I just came off
0: a call and i'm I don't know your response. Um mm-hmm. I, I teach a certain kind of therapeutic program. It's called Compassionate Inquiry. And we have hundreds of students around the world, um, including Palestinians and Israelis. Mm. And uh my Israeli students have been um deeply disappointed in me because or some of them have been, because they say that I speak on this issue with full empathy, um, compassion for the Palestinians, but not for the horror that struck the Israelis on October the 7th. And I have to kind of cop to that because sometimes when I'm trying to speak to the history of this, and I'm so aware of the history that's not being told, as you mentioned, the history of the one side has not been told in the West. Um, right. the History of indigenous people generally is not told. The history of indigenous mm-hmm. people or black people is not taught in the, in the United States. The history of indigenous people only now is beginning to be taught in Canada and certainly has been missing from the discourse internationally, um, the experience of the Palestinians. So when something happens, I tend to jump in and speak to that, perhaps without sufficient compassion for the shock and horror that Israelis and Jews experienced on October the 7th. Now, how would you address that one?
1: Well, one, I would want to defend you because I have seen you now on a number of interviews, and I'm talking about interviews that could go on for an hour, an hour and a half, and me and Anahita, we sit here and listen to every word, and I see you coming with a very, very strong, not just a critique, but a humanistic condemnation of the killing of innocent people, and you always begin with saying October 7th is not justifiable. There's no conditions under which one can put forward a compelling argument that somehow it, 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 it was justified. Uh, but then you move right into context and you say this context in no way is an attempt to displace that particular moment, but you don't begin with October 7th, you go back to the Belfort Declaration, you go back to, to 1948, you go back to 1967 and so forth. So I would want to defend you on that. It could be that our, our precious Israeli brothers and sisters want you to dwell and to linger and to stay on that uh, much longer than maybe you do. But you stay on it for me long enough to let the world know that you're, you, you've are you you got a humanistic reading. And it's by humanistic, I just mean you're concerned about common humanity, but also tell the truth about suffering wherever it is is taking place. So I see you as much more consistent than uh, these the Israeli students, but given, you know, their situation or given the to which they look at the world, maybe they just wanted more, more words, more time spent on their suffering, as opposed to the suffering of those almost 4,800 precious children who uh, who have been killed and the 12th Thousand, of course if they say it's about 10 or 11 but they've got two 2500 in the rubble that they can't find. So there's a good chance that they've already gone. but I I but I I you you and I know that you know in the end it's not a matter of taking sides. it's a matter no. of engaging in a fallible but courageous quest for truth and keeping track of humanity wherever you find it. And when you tell the truth about, you know, the history of occupations and the history of dominations, the history of subjugations, uh, you always connected to your precious family uh, in terms of the crimes of Europe. And you make that very, very clear. And I think that's that's, uh, that's as it ought to be. But you and I, we're always going to be in some sense, misunderstood, misconstrued, we get ready for character assassination. We get ready for being marginalized and pushed to the periphery when it comes to trying to tell truths about peoples whose suffering has been rendered invisible for so long in the mainstream narratives. It's just—it's just a fact. You and Brother Pape and Ficklestein yeah. and the others, the Chomskys and Stanley Witches and others. My dear friend Edward Zaid. Uh, that's always been the case, and so we we're, we're ready for that. But what I do love about your uh, your 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 I would call it discourse is too abstract, but your intellectually informed way of bearing witness is that you do have a humility that's very rare, hmm. very very rare. Uh, uh. Much as I love Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky's not the most humble brother in the world. You know, I mean, he just, he's got a Cartesian sensibility. This is clear, this is distinct, this is transparent. I'm laying bare. And he's so often right, and we love him for that. But you come across, you know, it's almost uh, it's like Chekhov. I think Chekhov for me is the greatest literary artist of late, late modernity. And Chekhov always has this sense of humility, sensitivity. I could be right. This is my view and opinion. I've been thinking about it for decades, but I'm open to critical ch- challenges to it. So you open yourself to Socratic energy, Socratic dialogue. That's a rare thing, my brother. That's mm. Very, very. Well, where do you think you got that from? I and mean, what? What it, it had to something to do with family. I'm sure. It has something to do with your intellectual uh, mentors. Well, where does that come from?
0: Well, you know, first of all, anybody who knows me personally can tell you how arrogant I can become.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, I always used to say, nobody's ever accused me of not being arrogant. You know, <laughs> yeah, but 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 when it comes to intellectual matters or historical matters or the matters that I've studied. Uh, addiction or stress or illness, um, human development, I have a certain degree of confidence um, that once I've studied it and I've come to the conclusions that I've arrived at, it's not necessarily that I'm right, but I'm very well grounded in where I stand. So I don't have to come across as um, arrogant about it. I can, I can acknowledge the possibility of me being wrong, and I'm just waiting for somebody to point out to me where I am, and where I am, I will admit it. You know, so it's, a it's not so much humility as non-defensiveness, I would call it, because when I am arrogant, it's a defensiveness, you know? And when I'm confident about something, as I am on this Israel-Palestine issue, because I've studied it inside and out for so many years, doesn't make me ultimately right, but I'm very confident on the ground that I stand on. Um, I want to come back to you. You've been through so much yourself. Um, you've been challenged so much. You've also spoken so much. Um, you bring so many different sensitivities to your work. I mean, there's your, what you call your socialism. There, there's your incredible sense of music, particularly jazz. And I'd love to hear more about that sometime. Um, your, your philosophical background, like your friend, uh, Chris Hedges, you're a former theologian, a divinity student as well you know um yeah, Chris is, Chris is a and, and, and you're a universalist how does all come that together for you how does all that come together for you when you take a stand for example on gaza mm. all these streams are flowing to this river that that you are um how do they
1: all come together mm. how did you how did you arrive at that well, that's a wonderful question. I'm not sure they really come together. There may be a lot of dissonance shot through. <laughs> just flows. And I, it stays in the flow, because I'm not one for uh, coherence. I, 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 I've read too much David Hume. I've read too much Kierkegaard. I've read too much Montaigne, who are exemplary skeptics. You know what I mean? I always think every yeah. form of coherence is hiding some kind of incoherence, every form of consistency is hiding some kind of inconsistency. But in the end, I think for me it has so much to do, my brother, with um, uh, my family growing up on the chocolate side of Sacramento. I wish you had a chance to meet Irene and Clifton, whose mom and dad, they were just exemplary human beings, deeply humble, uh, just trying to pass on to me and Cliff and Cynthia and Cheryl and family. Treat people right. Don't think you're ever better than anybody. Uh, uh, the world is a cold and cruel place, but you be a, try to be a light and shining, not because you're better, because of the choices you make. Those are moral choices. Those are political choices. And those are intellectual choices that you make. So you're right. I mean, you and I are internationalists. Uh, yeah. We just decide to be internationalists across the board in a world you know, it, 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 which, you know, the most powerful ideology of modernity is nationalism. This is the thing that people would live and die for. They wave the flag. I came out of the West family tied to Shiloh Baptist Church linked to the legacy of Martin King and others where every flag is, is under the cross uh, mm. as Christian. And that cross signifies unarmed truth and unconditional love. The condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak everybody's suffering beginning with the least of these. Ah, you see, that's what it means for the West family to be fallible, finite followers of Jesus of Nazareth. So you can see my connection to uh, the Jewish contribution to the world, not just modern world, coming out of Hebrew scripture. That particular Palestinian Jew named Jesus who uses his life, to exemplify what it that spreading of that steadfast love and loving kindness to the orphan and widow and landless and homeless and, 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 and fatherless, the oppressed and persecuted, but to do it in such a way that you still have fun. So we're not talking about any kind of narrow puritanical formulation. And you have to be in some ways of suspicious of a dogma, which takes the form of propositions and try to live a life which goes far beyond language. Yeah. Far beyond language, you see. I mean, so let me I'm interrupt
0: concerned. you. Let me say something about language. I'm gonna quote yes, to yes. You. You're probably aware of this quote by James Baldwin. Um, did you know him personally?
1: Well, I, I met him a number of times. I didn't really know him, but yeah, I yeah. I, yeah. I could see him in the Southpaw, right? Left-handed. I can see him right now sitting there huh. right in in, in in Raquel Club on 98th in Columbus in New York. But go right ahead. I'm
0: sorry to interrupt. You. I'm sorry too. So anyway, he said we live in a country in which words are mostly used to cover the sleeper, not to wake him up. Mm. Wow. Wow. And, go- and and going back to, uh, to the to s- the current Gaza situation, okay. you mentioned the media. Um I was reading the New York Times a few days ago. All the news that we think is fit to print, basically, you know, right, uh, right, sh- right, should be, right, should be their logo. Not all the news fit to print. All the news we think is fit to print. We choose. To. That's yeah. Right. yeah. Anyway, there, was not, <laughs> there was an article on the current situation in the West Bank, not in Gaza, in the West Bank, as if the two were separable, which they're not. But and saying that the article said settler violence threatens stability in the West Bank. Now, what do you make of that line? Settler violence. Here they're actually describing the unspeakable violence that the settlers are every day committing against the Palestinians and have been for a long time. And they say settler violence threatens the stability. What do you make of that? What kind of language is
1: that? Mm, mm, mm. Well, you know, it just lays bare the deep prejudices and the deep presuppositions that Assume that uh, Palestinian life has much, much less value than a Jewish life. And they don't see it there, you know, in, in the newspaper, but it, it's undeniable that they would just stop for a moment and critically reflect on what that reveals about the lens through which they view the world. I think mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, But you and I know, you know, this is often the case of uh, ruling classes. This is often the case of establishments. And you know that wonderful line that um, Henry James wrote to Robert Louis Stevenson, no theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. Mm -hmm. No theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. And you say to the New York Times writers, wow, you have been so cheated. Of uh, seeing the rich humanity of Palestinians so cheated in seeing the plight, predicament, the history of Palestinians in your own country. And here then in the New York Times, then comes along and says, Well, in fact, those lies that have been told about Palestinians that hide and conceal their suffering, we're going to per- perpetuate those. We're going yes. to. Yes. Per-
0: so, so stability, stability. Mm-hmm. Is the continued occupation and oppression and a bit too much violence on the part of the settlers threatens that stability i mean I, i'm not even sh- i i don't imagine they're conscious of it there was another article maybe two months ago about spying between china and uh, and the united states and they talked about on the one hand in the front page about how the chinese brazen attempts to get information in the u.s and the u.s enhanced capacity to get information about China. This is front page stuff. So on the one side, it's bra—it's brazen. On the other side, it's enhanced capacity. It's
1: enhanced capacity.
0: So I'm talking about the use of language here. I mean, as a philosopher, you must really be intrigued by the use of language.
1: Oh, oh absolutely. Well, You remember Karl Krauss, who was uh, one of the uh, Central European... Journalists, theorists, obsessed with language, like his contemporary, the great Ludwig Wittgenstein himself. Mm. And he had talked about the ways in which language had become so thoroughly poisoned, so thoroughly bastardized, so thoroughly uh, misused and abused that uh, it was it's it's hard to even think that you can use a counter language to 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 demystify and to deconstruct and demythologize the lies that have been told. And that's very real. It really is. That's very real. I mean, you know and I know. uh, You know, when you're talking about something like trauma, you're talking about the body. You know, you're talking about things that go far beyond language, and yet language is the only thing that we can still deploy in order to communicate in certain ways. But thank God for love and light. Thank God for silence and concrete examples that get far beyond language, and thank God for sound. I mean, that's one of the uh, reasons it's Never yeah, plays right. important role yeah. for oppressed people, you know. You yeah. know uh, Arthur Miller, who was my dear, dear brother, the great playwright, Yeah, yeah. You know, his play when he's talking about the, uh, the Jewish brothers and sisters playing in orchestra, in concentration camps,
0: Hmm.
1: trying to show their forms of resistance, trying to show their forms of humanity and agency under the most indescribably evil conditions. Hmm. And that language itself not only got in the way, but there had to be means by which they could still hold on to some sense of who they are as human beings Without necessarily getting caught within a language that it becomes so thoroughly, thoroughly bastardized, and you see it in propaganda in America, be it the mainstream media, and you see it in propaganda in, in any any ruling class. You can see it in Israel. Uh, I mean, you and I, you know, we got our critiques of the, uh, the 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 Arab countries. You know, my own beloved wife, you know, she's Iranian, right? Hmm. And got an Iranian regime in place, treating its own people in the fascist way in the name of a of Islam, not Islam of Malcolm X, but Islam of of the the Mullah. Yeah. And we try to be morally consistent about that across the board. But the fact that I mean, you know, United States is the mightiest empire in the history of the world, though, brother. And the fact that and of
0: course if you look at Iran. We know there was a democratic election there that was That's deliberately right. subverted um, by the British and the Americans, which eventually led to the rise of the um, the current... Um, exactly right. State, you know? And so everything is all connected. Coming back to music, my one of my favorite classic... I'm more into classical music than jazz. I'm a very... Not even a semi-amateur when it comes to uh, listening to jazz, although... I do. But one of my favorite classical mu- mu- musician is Shostakovich, who lived under um, the Stalinist regime.
1: Yeah.
0: And there's so much truth and beauty in his music that he could never speak in his language.
1: That's exactly and
0: right. And I very much just not imagine, I very much sense that jazz musician, jazz music in that certain sense is, is a certain sub- subversive quality to it as well. I, I don't know if I don't know if I can hear it clearly enough, but I'm sure it's got to be in there. What would you say about that?
1: Well, you know, the great Mary Baraka, also known as Leroy Jones, of his plays The Dutchman, where he talks about the brother on the subway with his saxophone blowing like he's Bird and Charlie Parker. And if he didn't blow that saxophone, he'd be probably engaging in more intense, even violent resistance. Yeah. So that there's ways in which you know the music allows us to get out our rage and righteous indignation, but it takes the form mediated through practice and discipline. Because as you know, just like classical musicians, Vladimir Horowitz hunted down Art Tatum, two of the greatest pianists of the 20th century. They knew they were dealing with levels of genius, discipline, and tremendous yeah. uh, uh, practice. But it does uh, uh, provide a venue for us to try to affirm our humanity, affirm our creativity, touch other people's hearts and minds and souls, and then also be able to find some Kairos moments, some meaningful moments in a world and a history that's overwhelmed by hatred and greed and fear and resentment and, and envy. You know, you might recall at the very end of Levi Strauss's uh, memoirs, he has that wonderful line. He says, the invention of mel- melody is the supreme mystery of the human science. Mm. When was melody even invented and created? Yeah. What is this relation to the depth and layers of suffering? That- Probably the-
0: Probably the first time a mother sang a lullaby to a baby somewhere.
1: Oh, oh! Now see, you got a positive, upbeat version of that though. That's that. That would be a melody of joy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or soothing, or holding. Or soothing, yes. A care, or love. You know?
1: No, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. No, indeed. You know a, a Chekhov short story called Rothschild's Fiddler." Oh, yeah. Chekhov is probably the only great Russian writer. Who did not have deep anti-Jewish sensibilities? We know Dostoevsky, with all of his genius, did. Yeah, he was a an Tolstoy. Anti-Jewish. Did. Yeah. But Chekhov did, and he writes about his Jewish brother who has the fiddle, and is mistreated under you know Russian uh, uh, conditions, and the ways in which he's communicating with the non-Jewish Russians as a musician. Hmm. I too a love that cuts deeper than any skin color, nationality, gender, sexual orientation, and so forth, you see. And for you to jump immediately and tell Levi Strauss, well, my hypothesis is when the mother sang a lullaby to the child, ooh, wow, wow. That's a Chekhovian move on your part, my brother. That's very Chekhov-like of you. You know
0: what's interesting when you mention it? um, In Eastern Europe, the Roma people, so-called gypsies, the Roma people. Yeah. They're the people who take the music of each country and really transform it somehow. So a lot of what people think is Hungarian music is actually even Franz Liszt, the composer, he mistook the the Roma rendition of Hungarian melodies as traditional Hungarian music. And, and the Jews played the same role in Eastern. This is not remembered so much anymore, but Jewish musicians would go and play at Christian weddings. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the United States, of course, uh black people and their music who would um entertain uh, the whites. So there's something about oppressed people that find musical expression in music that without, without, without the oppressor even knowing this.
1: Without even you knowing it. That's true. You think of Kurds in Turkey. That's so very true. That's so yeah. very, very true. Now, what do you think is going on there though? Um where? in in, in the roles of oppressed people's culture in general and music in particular being disproportionate in shaping the way in which dominating classes, ruling classes.
0: Because um, you you can express emotions that you're not allowed to express otherwise. You can express your grief and your pain or your joy that the upper classes are divorced from, because in the role of oppressors, they lose their sense of joy. And and, uh, through music, you can uh, channel all the pain, the grief, the darkness, and all the light. And you can do so in a way that doesn't get you killed, that doesn't get you um, punished. Yeah, I think yeah. now, that may be a simplistic explanation.
1: Oh, no, no, that strikes me as a powerful explanation. If yeah. It goes back to Amiri Baraka. If that brother's blowing his horn rather than part of some uh, a resistance movement with a gun, then he's going to live a little bit longer. Yeah. No, yeah. That's, that's, that's very, very true. Very true indeed. You remember the great Vico? Uh, one of the grand towering Italian philosophers alongside Gramsci, Machiavelli, and Aquinas uh, in the history of Italian philosophy, that his argument was that uh, music was the first response to corpses in graves of loved ones so that the moans and groans and sighs and even silence were transformed and transfigured into first noise and then sound. And then the narratives came much later, and then philosophy becomes even further down the road in terms of trying to be rationally coherent, because it's just who's talking about rationality and coherence in the midst of the death of your mother, a father, a grandmother, or grandfather. And he sees that as a fundamental human connection, that humando, which means you know, creatures on the way to burial, hu- human yeah. beings who yeah. are humbled by this catastrophe of death and corpses and so forth. Very different than Heidegger. Heidegger's talking about abstract possibilities of death for on down the road. Vico's talking about what are you gonna do in the face of those corpses? Oh, moan, sing a song. Response well,
0: it, to sound. It's interesting that uh, I'm, I'm liking the um, closing of this circle, because when you ask me about music, I, I went to birth and mothers cooing <laughs> to their children, and now you're going, now you're going to death. So maybe, uh, maybe it's the complete human experience that music expresses, you know, in ways that words are, except maybe in the hands of the greatest poets, you know. Um, there were words are inadequate for you know mm-hmm. and uh which brings me back to the grief that i'm feeling these days you know yes 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 like quite apart from anything else quite apart from what i think politically quite apart from how i understand the history quite apart from my frustration at the major media for just cheering on what i consider to be war crime upon war crime and not telling the truth, not portraying the subjective experience of the other. You know, when I get in touch, just, they just, I just have such, such grief, mm-hmm. you know? And I think a lot of people do. And some of us channel that grief into activism. I know I have. Um,
1: I know you have. But the grief is still there, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. No, there's no doubt about it, though, very, very much so. Um, and we just got to do all we can so that we're not numbed, uh, so that our hearts don't become hardened and our conscience doesn't become coarsened. And you do that by staying in motion, action, uh, both with words, deeds, writing, organizing, hitting the street, going to jail, being yeah. in solidarity, you know, both with, both not just the quick, though, but the solidarity with the dead uh, for those who have gone gone before. And it goes all the way back. You know, the dead is not just last week, as you know. It goes all the way back. Yeah. But you know, part of it, though, and this is where I want to ask you about uh, how you conceive of this complicated notion of hope because you know there that line in waiting for godot the great samuel beckett he says the tears of the world are a constant quantity mm. that human species have been involved in these layers and forms of, of of murder and attack and assault generation after generation after generation and how does one sustain one's hope without being cheaply optimistic
0: yeah i like that phrase cheaply optimistic because, um, you know what? If you refuse to be cheaply optimistic, you would not make a very good politician. I hate to tell you,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> because that's the coin of politics, you know.
1: Yes, yes, indeed. and uh,
0: where you stand, I, I, I'm gonna quote James Baldwin again, and it's easy to do because I'm quoting from my own most recent book. Um, he says. Not everything that can be faced can be changed. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And for me, that doesn't speak to hope so much as possibility. Like, I don't deal much in hope. Hope is depends how I define it, I suppose. Any word depends on how you define it, whether it's God or... That's mother. right, that's what right. Do that's we right. So, but hope, though I perceive it, is, is kind of a wish... That something will happen in the future. I'm more interested in, in what I've learned to call possibility, which is what's in the, what's possible in the present moment. So surely, when you stand outside the United Nations, I think that's why you gave a very powerful speech a few days ago. That was one of the most well, powerful is the word I use. I want to use a synonym, but let let me stay with the word powerful um, talks that I've seen. Passionate.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, um
0: mm-hmm. passionate speech on this issue of the current Gaza events. Surely there must be a sense of possibility in you that in speaking those words, something will open up somehow, somewhere, in the mind of somebody. And if not today, then maybe tomorrow. And that's not a hope. That's a sense of what's possible. And I think I've often quoted this rabbi, I don't know if it was Hillel or another rabbi who said this um, 2,100 years ago, 2,200 years ago, about 100 years before the birth of uh, Yeshua, Jesus. You guys in English keep calling him Jesus. I call him by his Aramaic name. Yeshua. I love
1: that. I love that. Yeah. Brother, I love that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah. and um, But, but about 100 years before his birth, this rabbi said, the task is not yours to finish. Um, but neither are you free not to take part in it. And he was talking about the task of healing the world. So here's a man 2,200 years ago. And when I think of failures in human history, I think of some terrific failures. How about Moses, you know, and uh, his prophetic voice, you know, not his tribal voice, but right, his prophetic right, right. both. He had both. Yes, he had yeah. both the, the voice that wanted to murder every living inhabitant of a certain area of Palestine. But he also had this prophetic voice where he said, you will not oppress a stranger because you know the heart of a stranger. You who are yourself strangers in Egypt. So he's a failure that way because look at all the oppression that's going on. Then there's the Buddha, a spectacular failure. You know, how's it going Buddha, with the compassion and wisdom in the world, you know, or Jesus or Yeshua? How's it going with forgiveness and do not do unto others and uh forgive them father for they know how's that going (laughs) but you know but but these but these great beings were speaking out of possibility they're not failures at all they spoke to human possibility and they sought to awaken in the human soul those seeds of possibility, and what were they all talking about? They were talking about love and acceptance and universality and and, 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 and the oneness of everything. Well, that's a possibility that I don't believe in, Brother West. I know it, even mm. though often I stray far away from it personally, mm. but the something in me knows that it's there, something in you must know that it's there. Otherwise, you wouldn't stand in front of the UN and speak as passionately as you do. So that's my response about hope. It's not hope, it's possibility that we're talking to. Mm,
1: no, no, I love that. And it's interesting, you started with failure. You know, you, Samuel Baker says, try again, fail again, fail better in that last work of yeah. fiction of his, the worst word, hope. Try again, fail again, fail better. There's a certain enactment and embodiment of possibility that if in motion, in the many ways, That's the story of your life, though, brother. That's the story of your life your text, your work, your relationships. How do I enact this possibility so that the worst does not impose closure? So that the worst does not say, Tina, there is no alternative. You remember that? That's that's what ruling classes often want to say to the oppressed. There is no alternative. There's no possibility. It's the thing that Ernst Bloch spent so much of his life talking about in that, his work on the principle of, he called it hope, but the principle of hope, utopian possibility in that way. Yeah. And, and that I'm, just- on that. I, I think I would probably call it a, a, a mature, costly hope because it's not abstract. You see, it's got to be in one's deeds, in one's praxis that the possibility is shown to others as something that is real, though not yet realized. Is that a fair characterization?
0: That's a great way to put it. It's real, but it's not yet
1: realized. And that's a beautiful way of being in the world, you know, it really is, because it doesn't deny the despair. The despair is real. And I think we all ought to be on intimate terms with despair if we have any sensitivity to the suffering of our fellow not just human beings, our fellow sentient creatures. Tell you the truth, you know. Yeah. yeah, very, very much so. But I think for the younger generation, I don't know you and I. You know, we older brothers, man. We OGs. You know what I mean? We We've been around a little while, you know. I'm afraid. I'm afraid I know that all too well. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know,
0: you know what? People call me an elder, and I'm thinking, what are you talking about? I'm still having the soft spot on my head hasn't even grown in yet. What do you call? What, what do you call me an <laughs> elder? Then I look at myself. I'll be 80 years old in January. You know. So um, if if I'm not an elder, who the hell is? You know. But <laughs> but, but, but but something in me still wants to resist that because I don't. know. Uh, that's another thing I'm fighting is the fact that we are aging and and you know what we're on our way out in a certain sense. You know. But you know what the other side of it is.
1: We've always been on our way out ever since we've been born. That's exactly right, and in fact, didn't really have to be here in the first place when we first got here. Yeah, you know what I mean. The first day you're born, you're old enough to die, and in so many ways, that that passage of time is uh, a blessing. You know, the fact that you've been around so long to share all that's in your heart, mind, and soul, and body, and was poured into you by those who loved you. And, and when I met Brother Aaron and you know, your beloved son and your sister, your daughter, who I saw interviewing you just the other day, they poured all of that love into your sister, Ray. Is that your name? I think your your your, your beloved wife's name, poured yeah. all of that love into you to make Brother Gabor this in the language of John Coltrane, it's force for good. Yeah. That's a beautiful yeah. thing, and it, it's a to take her as well as a, as a, uh, a giver, you know. It, 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 well, I don't know
0: how you relate to this, but I've thought about, going back to language again, um, I've thought about this phrase, growing older. Now, that's an interesting phrase, because physically, uh, when people get older, they tend, tend not to grow, they tend to shrink. Oh, but yeah. yet, there's that expression, growing older. So we could say, getting older, or becoming older. I mean, sometimes you do say that, but you also speak about growing older. What does that mean? It's possible that growth is possible till the uh, till the very end. And I read. I'm recently I'm rereading the the Greek playwrights, Aeschylus and Euripides and Sophocles, and uh, I think it's in the Agamemnon, uh, I believe, but it could be one of the other Greek plays that somebody says an old person who's capable of learning is still young.
1: Mm. well I like that
0: so I just hope that that, I don't know when this conversation will end or exactly how but I I, I hope that this conversation has been certainly for me has been a source of learning I thank you for that oh for me Um,
1: very much so yeah
0: and I hope also I hold out the possibility that for those listening there also have been an opportunity to learn something about the nature of the world about the narratives that we listen to and the narratives that we deny ourselves, about the narratives that the colonial colonial mentality would thrust upon us, but which we must, to go back to James Baldwin, don't let the words put you to sleep, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So just that openness, you know, to that learning. I I don't know what I'm saying anymore, except I'm expressing a wish here, that that's what would result from this and many other conversations.
1: Uh, what I, uh, from my point of view, my brother, anytime I and others get a chance to listen to you or read about the myth of the normal, or read about wrestling with trauma, that it's both a learning, but it's also a uh, a certain soul touching that leads toward a sustaining of a person, and and that's even deeper than learning. And in that sense, you become a kind of musician (laughs) because the great musicians, they don't just teach us things. They touch us in such a way that they can both unsettle minds and empower souls and almost heal bodies in a metaphoric way. And of course, the Greeks used to think that certain music can actually heal people physically. I know culture and you spend a lot of time reading about those Greek musicians associated with healing because he just wanted the music. To yeah. help people, to empower people, to enable and ennoble people to the best of his ability. You know, one time he was blowing the horn, my brother, and he dropped the horn and started beating on his chest. November mm-hmm. 1966, at Temple University in Philadelphia. And Rashid, the drummer, said, Train, what you doing, man? What you... He said, the, the horn is getting in the way. I'm trying to connect with the people, I'm trying to get them to see a the world differently to feel more deeply to be more courageous and the saxophone's getting in the way. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a, powerful, man?
0: Well, do you know something? I had to laugh when you talked about me being a musician because, do you know what a Proustian interview is? No. I probably you know you know Proust the uh, the French right? Uh,
1: Marcel, so, Marcel, Marcel 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 Proust.
0: Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's something called the Proustian interview that I never heard about, but it it consists of an interview asking you questions nothing to do with your area of expertise and mm. and there's no consistency in their questions they're not consequential they're not linear they just ask you anything from left to right up down you know anything they want to ask one after the other and you're supposed to answer and they weren't asking me about trauma or addiction or medicine or healing or anything i knew anything about so the first so one of the questions that they threw at me at some point in the interview was if you could be born again who would you be without missing a beat i said a drummer Really? Yeah.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah. That's so, so, really? so, That's fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, so you know what? I, I was in London recently and uh, I met a wonderful sister from, um, I think, Ghana. And we had dinner with her and her husband. And she's a musician, beautiful singer. She's actually an opera singer.
1: Um,
0: and she writes one of her opera, she actually wrote an opera that was presented i think at albert hall or will um anyway after meeting me and i told her the story she saw, sent me an email saying i'm gonna get you a drum and uh, i'm gonna get you a beautiful african drum and i'm gonna get you a couple of free lessons with a great drummer
1: <laughs>
0: so you know what and for weeks, I've been too busy traveling and speaking to even respond to her. But you know what? As soon as the conversation is over, I'm going to get on the email and write Helen. Helen Apega, her name is wonderful person. Helen, please send me that drum.
1: <laughs> that drum. Oh, I love it. Uh, you know, it's very interesting, though, brother, in the history of popular music that Marvin Gaye, who you know, you know, he yeah, started as yeah. like a drummer. Oh, did he? He started a drummer for Harvey Fuquay's group. And the same is true with Teddy Pendergrass. He started as a drummer for Harry Melvin and the Blue Notes. So that Mm. move from drumming to becoming this solo artist who goes from city to city to inspire and inform and empower, there's a sense in which you've been a drummer in the last 45, 50 years in your own way.
0: I suppose. And you know, speaking of drumming, when you listen to Arabic music, so so, when, when the Jews um, came to Palestine, um, apart from whatever else happened, um, which I've spoken about elsewhere and you've spoken eloquently elsewhere, but they also were inspired by the music of the local people. So a lot of Israeli music has got some very beautiful Arabic-style drumming in it. If only those two people if only everybody could sit down and drum together, you know?
1: Exactly. I mean, yeah. one way of looking at it is if our politics were one-tenth as rich, honest, candid, compassionate, and visionary, and truthful as our great musical traditions, we'd have a very different kind of world, don't I mean. we?
0: Well, on that note, let me ask you a final question then. So now you're running for the president of the United States, and I know you've been through a number of um changes. You're going to run for the candidacy of the greens or somebody else and know you're running as an independent what are you trying to do and and that's not a sometimes when people say what are you trying to do it's like a condemnation you know no i'm actually actually asking you brother west what are you trying to do what are you what is the possibility that you're trying what is the real that you're trying to realize here
1: yeah you know, it has everything to do with uh, what I've been doing for 55 years. Though, with Brother, when Martin King was shot down like a dog, I was 14 years old. I made a covenant then and there that I would try to be a runner for truth and a runner for justice uh, until the day I died. Mm. And uh, so the running for president is really a secondary thing in terms of it being subordinate to running for truth and running for justice. Mm. And when you run for truth and you run for justice, uh, you really are concerned with the kind of things that you and I are are talking about in relation to music. It means that, like the blues, the blues is preoccupied with catastrophe. You have to be honest about the forms of catastrophe in the history of the species, no matter who they are. And not allow it to have the last word. The blues is about swing, which means you have to have a different conception of time, a different form of temporality, so that what? So that possibility is never snuffed out, mm-hmm. It's never foreclosed. You're mm-hmm. always what Zaid used to call it, unstoppable predilection for alternatives.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: yet the third, when it comes to uh, quest question truth and justice in my own black tradition is improvisation, which is a form of practical wisdom, going back in some ways to Phonesus, going back to the Greeks. Yeah. I mean, that, that is the fundamental uh, force really in Antigone, you know, Antigone, Cleon, the other, they didn't have phronesis. They didn't bend. They couldn't bend. It was That's too right. tight. Too dogmatic. Yeah. New circumstances. You got to be improvisational. So people's new improvisation as if it's some kind of technical skill. No, no. It's a form of practical wisdom. that helps you get from womb to tomb with a certain dignity, a certain integrity. And so my whole campaign is just one little moment in this long, rich tradition of a Black people, a human people, a new world people at the deep humanistic and international level. And we'll see, because as you know, there's a good chance that Biden run out of gas, Trump end up in jail. I mean, we don't, we don't know what's happening in real time in the American empire as it continues to decay and decline. And we just want to make sure that poor people and working people here and around the world at Richard Ever of the Earth that the great friends for Fanon talked about, that their plight is never, ever, ever forgotten and that there's some voices that are highlighting their humanity.
0: When we get too close to just seeing it as a Jew versus Arab or Palestinian versus uh, Israeli uh, situation, we forget that there is this world empire that fundamentally sets the framework for everything that's going to happen. And, and, you know, as our mutual respected mentor, Noam Chomsky points out, the whole intellectual system is designed for us so that we're incapable of seeing the empire. We're, we're, We're seeing the occasional manifestations of it, but we isolate it. From the large picture, that there's something huge going on here, absolutely. and we're not supposed to
1: talk about it. That's exactly right, my brother. And it goes back to the British Empire, 19 yeah. teens and 20s and 30s. Yeah, and how other, um, even the Soviet Empire in the 40s it played its small but still significant role. You're absolutely right. And in the end, you know, we just want to say there are certain things that are non-negotiable, which has to do with humanity, dignity, security, and safety. Yeah. Jewish security, Jewish safety, never again, absolutely. Palestinian security, Palestinian safety, never again, absolutely. But then given the larger backdrop of the empires and the nation states and others that are playing roles outside of the context in which those two peoples find themselves, you can't render those invisible or you'll never be able to get at the source of the problem.
0: Well, let's agree on this then, that never again is not a tribal slogan. That's right. It's a,
1: it's a universal slogan.
0: Absolutely. It
1: applies to everybody. Everybody. It is internationalist to the core. But I'm telling you, brother, I'm giving you a hug, man. Right? <laughs> Thank you. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> but this has been just so wonderful. Well, I hope we meet in, I hope we meet in person someday. Oh, absolutely! And I shall have drinks with you, and we'll break bread, and we might even sing a song together. Well, you
0: might not want to hear me sing a song, but <laughs> but you know what? I'll go for it.
1: <laughs> well, I'll sing a song with you anytime. I'll bring some drums. I'm not a drummer myself, but I'll bring some drums. You can do your thing too. But thank you so much, and really want to thank Brother Aaron. You know, because he and Anahita really yeah. this amount of heat that had sent him a note saying it would be wonderful for uh for me and you and i tell you brother this is just just a pure blessing though man it really is
0: but for me as well and you know what if nobody sees this it still would have been good enough as far as i'm concerned
1: absolutely absolutely so, so thank so you Very true. indeed will you stay strong my brother you too bye-bye all right, all right. Thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday throwdown episode, please subscribe at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time.